Hello everyone, it's April 21st, 2020. So Intuitive Machines is developing a lunar lander and has just selected a very cool lunar landing site. And NASA explains why it has selected SpaceX for Lunar Gateway Cargo Delivery. There are reasons for the above mentioned selections. Let's talk about them and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 257 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I uh, I haven't eaten meat in a while, and so I've been playing around with what um, <laughs> a meat alternative uh, uh-huh. recently mm. that's basically seitan, but like a, a version of seitan. And I made a batch yesterday that turned out really well, and so I can kind of do a show and tell about that. Cool. Uh What's seitan? Yeah, I'm kind of curious because I can't imagine you ever not eating meat, but I guess you're using some kind of a substitute, so it's not well, like you're actually giving it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I haven't eaten meat in almost a year now. Really? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like, I, I know that, like, I've talked a lot about meat in the past, but, like, my diet has always been really varied, and it's actually a lot of fun to realize how much meat we eat and how it, it's kind of like like rice in China, like in China, you can go out and, you know, this is sort of a, uh, a universal statement. So it's not always true, but like one of the, one of the common things is you can go out and eat. And if your meal doesn't include rice, when you go home, you still want to have dinner because <laughs> you haven't had rice. Um, mm-hmm. And like, boy, I hardcore feel that because rice is amazing, but we use meat in almost every meal. And when you stop eating meat, the amount of other things that you end up filling that space with is really interesting. And the, the techniques that you end up using when you can't just say, you know, oh, this meal is going to be a, a baked chicken thigh and some veggies. Like, you know, what else do you do? You, you just wind up with more variety. And then um, it, it got worse when I started dating Corey, who's uh, an on and off vegan. She spent a lot of time being vegan and then remembered the charms of uh, cheese and kind of fell out of uh, started eating a little bit of dairy again but so okay so this is this is really really cool um seitan is a meat alternative it's like a high protein food made out of wheat um so it's sort of kind of the, the same category as tofu hmm. and what's really cool is there's a version of seitan or a seitan derivative called chickweed and so it's um, chickpeas and wheat, specifically uh, wheat gluten. And mm. so what, what's really cool is I pasted uh, a video of us blending up the chickpeas and the flavor, uh, the flavors that we're going to use. So there's um, some like vegetable bouillon powder and sage and a couple other things, some vinegar. And then you mix your blended chickpea. So, so I mean, it, it it's really like kind of a thin hummus. And then you mix it with a, about one to two ratio with vital wheat gluten. So more gluten than, than chickpea puree. And then you knead it and you have to knead it for a really, really, really long time. But what happens is the wheat gluten starts to form those beautiful gluten strands that you get in bread. Um, but you work this to the point where bread would be it just totally inedible. And then you wrap it to protect it from liquid or from water intrusion. And then you can either steam it for, you know, like six hours or something, or you can pressure cook it for two hours. And so, uh, we pressure cooked it. And when it comes out, it's really crazy. The strands 
uh, or the, the weak gluten structure allows it to pull apart as if it was like chicken breast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so I don't really care about replacing the texture of meat, but this forms a really interesting protein, uh, like high protein substance in that you can shred it. And so you can get some really lovely textures like, you know, you can you can do like shredded chicken tacos or, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. It's been a while since we've done, I guess, what, what was it? We called it Food with Ben or something. But this is <laughs> yeah, right. a, a nice, a nice reintroduction. We've uh, picked it back up. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Intuitive Machines selects a lunar landing site. So have we talked about Intuitive Machines before? Yeah, we actually mentioned them last week when we were talking about clips. Yeah, as, as a proper like news item, I think just whenever we talked about clips, Intuitive Machines would always get brought up with Astrobotic and uh, whomever else. But yeah, because Mastin also got a clips award last week is why mm-hmm. uh, we brought up mm-hmm. um, Intuitive Machines. Yeah, but David, I think you're right. I don't think we've talked about them in particular yeah, so this is good. I don't know much about them myself, except that they seem to be, you know, another lunar landing company. And so their plan is to put a lander on the moon using a Falcon Heavy, I think, as I understand it. Um, oh, Falcon 9. Falcon, oh, Falcon 9. Okay, a Falcon 9. All right, that's, yeah, interesting. Surprised <laughs> me too. Yeah, they've, yeah. Got, they've got propellant on board, so the Falcon 9 does, does mm-hmm. well enough. Yeah, it dumps them off at Earth orbit, and then they head out, yeah, on their own. Although I, I, I can say, though, we did... Talk a little bit about the Nova Sea because I remember specifically that it was based on uh, Project Morpheus Heritage, and right. I remember us talking about that. So that was at least you know a year or change ago. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, the Nova Sea lander is it's pretty cool. It's based on right Project Morpheus, so it's a uh, methane and liquid oxygen propulsion system. It also, as one of its key features, has. Uh, PLHA or precision landing and hazard avoidance. And so this is going to be something that's very important for, you know, the rest of the CLIPS program as far and as well as the sort of um, these initiatives to kind of create a, you know, a, a lunar base, you know, all the appropriate infrastructure, right, that we talked about last week. So it's a pretty cool looking spacecraft as well, if I may say so myself. Yeah, the, the mock-ups are really gorgeous. Um, we'll have to see mm-hmm. what the final that the actual flight version looks like. Another cool thing about the lander is so it has two tanks, one for the uh, for the methane and one for the oxygen, and it has like solar panels mounted like along the body, so they're not extended from the lander. They're just you know part of it. Yeah. So so the lander is a is a vertical cylinder. It almost looks like a like a slightly longer coke can, and so you're talking about the panels being vertical along the sides. In another render, it looks like they're kind of put all over the place, not necessarily two oh, okay. long vertical panels. So yeah, their website. It looks a little different than oh. the uh, the render on the on, or not the render, but the actual the publicity photo uh, mockup. Yeah. yeah, but it does look neat. It, it looks more like a descent. Well, like it is a descent stage, but it looks kind of like a you know, I guess like a Falcon Nine first stage. I mean, not exactly, but it has like this you know this nice cylindrical look because most landers tend to be mm. a little bit more I don't know, just like oddly shaped and bulky because you know, they can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This definitely looks like they're trying to take up all of the usable space in a payload fairing. Yeah, and then also, like, apparently, yeah, so with that kind of, I don't know, with that streamlined sort of shape, they've got nine square meters of payload mounting surface. Uh, surface. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They put the payloads external, so it doesn't have like a, I don't know, if it does have a bay, it's not clear where that would fit based on where those tanks are. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Coke can shape is almost completely filled by the fuel tanks. And then, you know, even the, the engine is mostly external. There, there is some interior volume, but I, I have a feeling that this mock-up, the one missing all of uh, the reflective foil on the outside, the, the thermal shielding, I've got a feeling that this mock-up has more interior space than it's actually going to have. Because uh, obviously you're going to need some avionics base, you're going to need tanks to pressurize and, you know, all, all sorts of other things. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not... It's not a super roomy spacecraft, is it? There's no bay. Well, I think I see a better image. So basically, it looks like all the payload is going to be mounted just on the side. So it's going to kind of lower itself like a like a utility rack or something, you know? Like there's just like stuff hanging on it. <laughs> it's funny when things don't have to fly in atmosphere. They really look different. <laughs> Right. Yeah, boy, they have a bunch of different uh a bunch of different renders. Their video render looks a little different than the one just posted on the uh website. And what one of their really old renders actually has some triangular solar panels, which is fun. Probably a needless waste of silicon, but <laughs> <still nice. laughs> Ah, so that one's got a little uh a little rover, rover, yeah. On the side, yeah. You just hang a rover from the side of this thing. And I guess you have to make sure that everything is, you know, like obviously very well balanced so that it can land properly. But otherwise, yeah, there's no atmosphere to contend with. So you can just hang stuff off of your exterior body of your spacecraft and then just land it. Mm. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, just make sure it fits. Yeah. So kind of the big news is that uh, this mission, which is the IM-1 mission. So uh, even though they're not going to be the only payload on it, I guess they're kind of taking the lead, so that's why the I'm assuming Intuitive Machines One is the name of the mission, and they have a a date and a site landing site, and so that's kind of what's really exciting about this because we've known that they're one of the Eclipse uh, payloads for a while, and so uh, they're aiming for October 11th, 2021, next year, next fall, and the landing site is. The uh, Vallis Schrodery, which is Schroeder's Valley, uh, named after a German astronomer, in the Oceanus Procellarum, which is the sea of, or sorry, ocean of storms. So whenever you look at, you know, your moon, right, the darker patches are the seas, um, the mare, right, but the really big ones they call the oceans. And when you look at those dark floodplains, kind of the westernmost extent, uh, the westernmost kind of floodplain, that's the uh, ocean of storms. And so that's, again, the moon is the coolest thing, I think, to look at Mm -hmm. through a telescope Mm -hmm. because you can not only kind of see so many details, but then you could be like, okay, you know, Bereshit tried to land there and Mm -hmm. you can actually just see it yourself with your own eyes. And so similarly, you can just go and look and it does have a pretty cool marker. Um, So in the middle of the, the ocean, I guess, or Actually, it's kind of at the border of the ocean and the neighboring sea. There's a really bright crater. It's not one of these gigantic ones, but it's a very bright crater called Aristarchus. And that's basically right where uh, Schroeder's Valley is. It's this largest valley on the moon. I don't know. I'm not a geologist, right? So I don't know whether it was a... I looked at some ways these form. It could be a collapsed lava tube or it could be what's called a graben, which is kind of in between plates maybe falling uh but one way or another it's this giant snaky kind of uh valley and i mean presumably the mission's going to land off to the side (laughs) and not in the valley if i have any idea of how the engineers want to actually land their spacecraft right (laughs) Uh, they would prefer a parking lot 
Yeah. And that's the beauty of the lunar seas and oceans. So um, we've sent spacecraft there before. A couple Lunas, a couple Surveyors, including Surveyor 3 and Apollo 12, have all been to this uh, ocean, Oceanus Prosalarm, or Ocean of Storms. And uh, Apollo 18 would have gone to Schroeder's Valley if it wasn't canceled. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we'll get to, you know, check this out, hopefully, if all goes well with the, uh, you know, IM-1 mission. So... Uh, as for the mission itself, like I said, right, it's not going to just be, you know, the Nova Sea lander, but there's going to be five NASA payloads as well as an unspecified amount of uh, commercial cargo. And like uh, you said before, David, it's going to be on a uh, Falcon 9. I guess among these uh, NASA payloads, at least, or I guess it wasn't clear what the mix is between NASA and commercial, but ultimately there's going to be nine instruments that are kind of designed for laying groundwork for future lunar missions. So missions... Uh, Instruments to test the uh, composition of lunar soil, uh, test some uh, precision landing technology, test the uh, radiative environment coming from the lunar surface, um, and things like that. So, again, a lot, this kind of really builds off of a lot of what we talked about last week. If you want to talk about a lunar ecosystem, right, a habitat, you know, um, sending missions there, having an orbital platform, then you really want to basically learn as much about the lunar surface as possible so you can engineer your spacecraft and your habitation and all the sort of infrastructure to be okay in that type of environment. All right. Uh, gateway logistics, I guess. Yep. All right. Let's translate on over to a second story. So this week, uh, yeah, SpaceX and gateway logistics services. This is a, a commercial moon episode. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is actually. Huh. Um, yeah. So this one has to do with getting things to the lunar gateway. Um, and there was a, what is it officially called? I don't know. It, it was um, kind of like an RFP or something. Yeah. If you're looking for the language they use, they're calling this a source selection statement. So oh, okay. basically a, I don't know, justification of why the proposal proposal bidding turned out the way it did. Right. So yeah, so we're we're talking about not before we selected it, but after we selected it, here's the Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense because SpaceX had already been chosen, right? So yeah. we kind of already knew that. Mm -hmm. So this is like okay. So this is a clarification, I guess, as to why they had chosen SpaceX, uh the DXL, the the Dragon XL. So there were three other contenders. Um there was Northrop Grumman and Boeing and Sierra Nevada. They went with SpaceX because they had these various criteria that had to be met and SpaceX had done the best. So I guess we can discuss that a little bit as to, you know, what they had done right and these other companies had kind of done wrong or, you know, not as well, although some had some pretty big faults. Mm. I think that SpaceX has some things that need to be probably addressed. They have some stuff that has to be corrected, but basically their proposal is, you know, by far the best. So those, yeah, those, the kind of three factors you're talking about, it sounds like it was, you know, 50% of their evaluation was based on price. So, yay. Um, and then the remaining uh, factors were mission suitability and past performance. So those were not weighted quite as heavily as price was. What's interesting is that they have that criterion, the mission suitability. So I wonder how they evaluate that. Like, what does that mean? I mean, like, it obviously mm -hmm. means how suitable is this proposal for the mission, but... Yeah, so I, I don't know either, but it sounds like... So this is my interpretation. Um, an example of a uh, weakness, a significant weakness in the uh, mission suitability category would be for something like Northrop's uh, Exploration Cygnus, their version of it for this, you know, particular mission profile. And uh, they have here, quote, the significant weakness that NASA identified was redacted, but apparently it could, quote, lead to significant degradation or even total failure of Exploration Cygnus, the launch vehicle, or both. Mm -hmm. and so this is Ken Bowersox telling us that. So that's kind of wild that 
if your spacecraft and maybe the, i mean this is just my ignorance of how this you know game is played but that you can still score a good score even though your spacecraft might have a significant weakness that could potentially destroy the vehicle the spacecraft itself or both um, but I guess you can always improve things and <laughs> figure out what that weakness is and edit, you know, or, uh, you know, make changes to remove it. But yeah. Well, I mean, that it was categorized as a significant weakness, right? So mm-hmm. um, the balance, at, at least in the mission suitability category, the balance for that is they had a significant strength for their cargo stowage design, which exceeded requirements. So it, that that's how, how, how do you balance a significant weakness with a significant strength? Maybe part of it too is it's, it's kind of like the language of good and fair doesn't quite map on to kind of mm-hmm. how we think mm-hmm. of it in everyday talk. Where, yeah. Yeah, colloquially, exactly. And so maybe good, you know, very good is like an A or B grade. Good is like a C and then fair is an F. You know what I mean? Where? Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting a... is, uh, so if you compare um, Sierra Nevada and SpaceX in uh, management plan subfactor rating, they both got a good rating. Well, okay, mm-hmm. Boeing, Sierra Nevada and SpaceX all got good ratings. SpaceX had one strength, Sierra Nevada had one weakness, and Boeing had no findings. So... It feels like sort of a wide category. Uh, Northrop Grumman got a fair, and that was because they had one significant weakness and three weaknesses. So fair, you really have to push down to to get there. Mm. Yeah, this this isn't linear math that they're doing. They're not just averaging out a points. There, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, these are the professionals at NASA. They know what they want, and so they're using their discretion when it comes to the scoring. And so, yeah, exactly. the the math might be a little uh, inscrutable to us, but Overall, the rankings do seem to kind of logically map onto base onto the weaknesses that they found and strengths that they found. Mm-hmm. So one of the minor weaknesses that they found with SpaceX, because I don't think the SpaceX had any big ones, but there was some ambiguity about the DXL and Falcon Heavy like interface, um, how exactly the Dragon XL module would connect to the Falcon Heavy. So, mm. but that seems like to me that I mean, like I can see why that would be a minor thing because that doesn't seem too technically challenging. You know, it just has to be the interface, and it kind of you know has one function and it has to separate and then they're kind of good you know like that doesn't seem like a big deal so i can see why i would uh be really careful about saying just an interface remember interfaces of all types are the you know one of the most challenging parts of a spacecraft i didn't realize that they were because i would assume i've never heard of i shouldn't say never but like of all the challenges that they've had other things tend to break first yeah i've never heard of like oh we can't get this dragon module to separate (laughs) well the the difficulty lies in actually the design because the interfaces are where two different systems meet and you have it, it's a people problem you have to get people to communicate with each other mm-hmm. and so that's why we have you know systems engineers all they do is design interfaces or or oversee the design of interfaces and so getting two different teams to talk to each other and agree on what this interface is going to be and what each of the pr- what what each of the parameters is and then moreover what that means what the what the limitations on either side of that are um, that that's really one of the, the tough parts because it's inner team cooperation. So that that's why I would say don't don't say it's just an interface. Like it's not, it's not just an interface. But I think that once it's designed and made and built, they're not going to have any problems with it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't think it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. I've never even heard of that happening with anything SpaceX. And it might even be more minor than all that because the way I'm reading and interpreting it is that they were ambiguous and didn't go into you know the details in their proposal essentially. So maybe, you know, they do have a interface or, you know, a good plan 
uh, for how to mount the you know Dragon XL with the Falcon Nine. Well, they they the so- Falcon Nine, but they just didn't talk about it enough that it had to be flagged, you know, for consistency as a weakness in the proposal. Like, could you you know you should have elaborated on this more because you know if you're applying for, I mean, this is life, right? If you apply for a proposal mm-hmm. and you leave things out, they don't yeah. <laughs> typically call you up and say, hey, can you uh, elaborate on that? Now you get graded with what you submit. So yeah, and they and they certainly, I mean, SpaceX certainly has a lot of experience building uh, space craft deployment mechanisms and that kind of thing and you know bearing loads through severable links like it's it's something that spacex mm-hmm. can do and yeah i i dennis what, what you say really kind of seems to ring true <laughs> spacex goes oh well this is simple so we're we're not going to think about it and since we're not thinking about it, it's not going in the proposal and they get dinged for it that does sound very spacex <laughs> another thing that kind of you know like dinged them i guess was that you have to pass through the service module to get to the cargo when this thing docks and i think was that a source of confusion for us when we talked about it because you know how it is a very interestingly designed cargo module because i think as you had said ben it's kind of like upside down the like the way that it's mounted because you have the docking port on the bottom or like facing downward so basically the dragon spacecraft is actually the service module then by that logic it seems yeah, I mean that that that's kind of how it's described. So, um its design approach would locate the surface section of the Dragon XL between the pressurized volume and the gateway, meaning crew would have to translate through the surface section which is mechanically active. While there is a small possibility that human health and performance standards such as acoustic environments would require mitigations if they are at an unacceptable level. Hmm. And then at the end of the paragraph, however, because these weaknesses are minor and correctable, I do not consider them to be an obstacle to SpaceX's successful contract performance. Did he talk about what's correctable about this? Because I mean, changing what goes where seems very non-trivial. But is it just a matter of just mitigating having them pass through the service module? No, no, no. no. So so, um, the minor and correctable weaknesses are uh, further SpaceX like uh, NGIS and SNC inadequately defined what will likely be a new hardware interface between its launch vehicle and cargo vehicle weakness number one. Additionally, SpaceX could have been clearer in stating its launch vehicle's performance capability, especially since this configuration has not yet flown and thus minor performance margins for lifting its Dragon XL are uncertain weakness number two. There are also two minor technical weaknesses regarding a drag-through duct for ventilation between Gateway and Dragon XL, weakness number three, and Internet Communications Protocol, weakness number four. However, because these weaknesses are minor and correctable. Hmm. So that that's referring to the to the other weaknesses, not weakness number, not uh, weakness number five. It's one through four are correctable. So I guess unsurprisingly, one big issue that Boeing had, I guess first let's actually talk about how they did. They were immediately eliminated because they had the lowest suitability score plus the highest cost. So that's a bad combination. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing that I guess did not surprise me was that there was not much insight into the program and they did not provide access to the flight software source code, which, you know, yeah. since like, you know, Shock. since they've been having so many problems with software, flight software. And I feel like at this point, I'm wondering if maybe that was intentionally held back because they were afraid that, you know, that was going to be evaluated. They got an ex- it's not that they didn't provide it. So they, they got an exception. Like they, they had to request an exception to not provide their source code. So I think I, I think they would have had to provide a justification to get that exception. And I think the justification probably would have been we have a long history, we're reliable, and this uh borrows code from some of our other proprietary projects and we mm-hmm. don't want to share it because it would, you know, potentially cause uh, a loss of um 
IP or something. So yeah. I, I would be surprised if they consciously understood, you know, if the organization at that level understood that there was a problem and that they needed to hide it. That, that seems unlikely. It seems like the organization had a blind spot and individuals understood that this was a bad thing, but the organization as a whole was blind to the issue. Was that the case at this point? I don't know exactly when this was all done, so that might be the case. I'm not sure. Just like given recent events, I, it seems that maybe they would have done exactly as you had said. And then, you know, NASA looks at it and says, well, that doesn't inspire confidence. They have their reasons, but they probably would like to know what's going on there. Right. They They gave them the exemption and then... And then gave them a significant like, yeah. weakness for it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what you said. <laughs> Think of the timeline, because when when did all this the Starliner stuff happen? Kind of over December, January, right? The, well, December fourth, the Source Evaluation Board was appointed to evaluate proposals for the GLS contract. So then Boeing's you know proposal preceded all the Starliner issues. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering if that was the mm. case, because that was December twentieth. So <laughs> so interesting that hey that this. Was an, a known, yeah, a known practice. Right? Yep, even then. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and the the second significant weakness uh, was a sign for Boeing's approach to NASA Insight, not the mission, but Insight from NASA. The proposed approach did not meet NASA's Insight notification, accommodations, or compliance requirements, and it does not provide adequate methods for flow down of Insight and approval requirements to ensure all reasonable steps are taken to affect the highest probability of mission success. I mean that that really sounds like uh like Starliner, doesn't it? Don't don't brush off NASA. And you know, it also sounds like 737 Max. <sighs> they they basically didn't, you know, didn't accept the flow down of insight from uh FCC. Probably the, one of the more interesting bits of all this is what uh Andrew brought up in that email. Yeah. <laughs> Before we read Andrew's uh, comment, let me read the quote from the selection statement, which I think is going to kind of get us on the same page here. Let's see. Where is it? Uh, here we go. SpaceX could have been clearer in stating its launch vehicle's performance capability, especially since this configuration has not yet flown and thus performance margins for lifting its Dragon XL are uncertain. So uh, I think this configuration refers to Dragon XL flying on a Falcon Heavy, but it, it does sort of sound like configuration doesn't mean the total system, but specifically means the launch vehicle. It's it's tough to say. Hmm. Uh, SpaceX did have some challenges in earlier rating periods within the schedule area, mostly related to the qualification of its full thrust launch vehicle and its return to flight after the AMO-6 on-pad failure in 2016. In the intervening rating period, SpaceX has improved to redacted, which demonstrates to me that they are beyond initial growing pains and are ready to execute GLS requirements if selected. SpaceX's CRS-2 performance is likewise impressive. It will soon begin to transition from CRS-1 to CRS-2 work in calendar year 2020. CPAR's rating for SpaceX's commercial crew work were mostly positive. Da, 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 da. So um, full thrust launch vehicle, but that that's in that's already in flight. So. Uh, is Falcon Heavy yet flying full thrust? No, I was going to say uh, Gunter's uh, page. He's saying that both Falcon Heavy launches were Block 5. And it looks like they have already flown. Uh, uh, they flew a Block 5 second stage on STP-2. So I'm assuming that that's not the new, like the unflown configuration is mm -hmm. just upgrading to, to Block 5 or to full thrust. I'll bet you they mean Falcon Heavy 
and, and Dragon XL. I, I think that that yeah. must be what they're talking about. Also, the way I'm reading it too is that it's not necessary. So because a, a, a Falcon Heavy Dragon XL combo has not been flown and they could have been clear in stating their launch vehicle's capabilities under that configuration, uh, you've got kind of two options. You either upgrade the Falcon Heavy or you just demonstrate that a Falcon Heavy Block 5 can, in fact, launch your Dragon XL to the moon. And I mean, the, the XL is flying inside of a payload fairing, and they've flown other payloads. So I don't know what the I don't know what the issue is. But um, Andrew wrote in via email um, with a really good question, hmm. which is echoing what a lot uh, or what a, what a couple of reporters have said so far. Let's see. Uh, Je- yeah, so Jeff Faust said another weakness involved the performance of the Falcon Heavy and suggested a new version of that rocket would be used for Dragon XL. I don't know if I agree with you, Jeff. But then Andrew kind of stated this in a a more complete questioning way. He says, first, I'm surprised that Falcon Heavy needs an upgrade. Wasn't all the talk about how much weight it could throw to Leo, GO, TLI, etc. Second, uh, what is that upgrade? A, could it be a dual engine upper stage a la Centaur? Uh, B, could it be a longer upper stage? C, could it be a larger diameter upper stage? Um, I think it would be... The, I think if we're changing dimensions, I think it's more reasonable to expect a, a longer or larger diameter payload fairing, which they've been talking about flying anyway. But yeah, I, I don't know. I th- I think Andrew's kind of on the right track. Like those would be mm. the upgrades, <laughs> and mm-hmm. those seem a little extreme. So, but yeah, I I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, uh, I think the configuration is not referring to the Falcon Heavy configuration, but the whole system configuration. The whole thing. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Okay. Consensus. All right, let's do three short and sweet. And what is our first one, Ben? MEV-1 completes Intelsat 901 relocation. And we talked about this, I think, back in February, but here's the update. Uh, Intelsat 901 has resumed service after a visit from the Mission Extension Vehicle 1, MEV-1. Customers have been transitioned off the satellite late last year to prepare for its ultimately successful docking with the Northrop Grumman MEV-1, which will remain attached for five years before boosting the satellite into a graveyard orbit for retirement. The two companies have another contract with MEV-2 slated to extend the life of Intelsat 1002 later this year, although that faces delays given the current global pandemic. Next up, SpaceX has a Demo-2 launch date. So NASA announced the date for the test flight that will carry two astronauts to the ISS. Spacecraft Commander Doug Hurley and Joint Operations Commander Bob Behnken will lift off at 4.32 p.m. on May 27th from Pad 39A. SpaceX still has one more parachute test to complete as the March 24th test failed due to the parachute system not being armed. Industry sources say there is one more test scheduled before the Demo-2 launch, though no exact date has been given. And if all goes well, the two American astronauts will lift off on schedule for their two to three month extended stay aboard station. That'll be a high Highlight of my year for sure mm. and it's within grasp totally and finally launcher one has had a captive carry virgin orbit 747 performed the final captive carry flight with a launcher one rocket attached under its left wing capping off a final major milestone before the first actual rocket launch the two-hour flight from the mojave air and spaceport was the first with a fully fueled launcher one and included a rehearsal of the launch release maneuver during which the plane pulls up sharply after releasing the rocket the company will analyze data from the flight and run through a few last rehearsals before their launch demo, which does not currently have a specified date. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We got one little 
uh, I guess, correction, or at least a suggestion that I don't know why we didn't think of when last week we were talking about the Electron first stage coming back, and we couldn't figure out how is Rocket Lab bringing back this first Mm -hmm. stage with a parachute because you're dealing with some pretty high speeds. Well, there is something that exists that can address just that problem. Which we should have known. We should have remembered about. (laughs) And we had talked about. (laughs) Yeah, it's called a balut or a balut. I don't know how to say it still, but, you know, we've talked about it many times. Okay. Do you call it a balloon or a balloon? Thank you. Yeah, I guess I say balloon. balloon. So I guess it would be balut. But like reading the word, I want to say balut. But it would be a balut. Yeah, I think it's balut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So balutes, balloon parachutes, uh, they're good for supersonic deceleration. Right. And so this week we have a correction coming from uh, Amy Alex Parent. So we appreciate you uh, pointing out something that we missed <laughs> while we had a nice long discussion about the electron slowing down. All right. So that's the only correction. Moving on to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have one winner, the Greek. And the clue was like Jar Jar in an offcast 620C. Such a strange clue, but somebody got it. So congratulations. <laughs> and, he, and he nailed the clue. All right. This week in spaceflight history is April 23rd, 1961. Soyuz 10 fails to dock with Salyut 1. So this was the first of two flights of a Soyuz 7K OKS. A 7K OKS is basically a 7K OK, but with the OKS docking system attached. All right, one quick mid-edit interruption. It's not the OKS docking system. That's not a thing. The Soyuz 10 instead used the SSVP docking system, which is still used today. That's what Ben meant to say. All right, back to the show. And indeed, this was the first flight of a Soyuz with a docking system. So the OKS was developed alongside the LOK, the 7K LOK, which was the uh, Soyuz version that was going to take people to the moon. It was a little different in that it had a toroidal tank to you know, have enough fuel to get to the moon and back. But what's really cool is that instead of just having the docking system on top of the orbital module, it actually had sort of like a blister. Uh, it was called a cupola um, on top of the orbital module that the docking system was on top of. And so it was just a couple of windows to allow better views while docking. So Soyuz 10 was a 7K OKS, which was a variant of the 7K OK. Um, 7, 7K OK in total flew, um, like different variants of it flew Soyuz 1 through Soyuz 11 missions. And then it transitioned over to 7KT, which flew Soyuz's 12 through 40. So the reason I go, I go through all this family history is because I think it's really interesting that that's where the lineage stops. Currently, we're flying Soyuz TMA and Progress M1, and we're getting ready for Progress M2. I think there's a new Soyuz in the works, but both of those vehicles are not derived from the 7K. It's actually, they're actually derived from Soyuz R, which are a, they're a sibling of 7K. Both of them were derived from Soyuz A, which never actually flew. The Soyuz R was a military version intended to become its own mini space station. They're actually going to launch it in two parts and, and make like a, like a little, uh, a little salute out of it, basically. So Soyuz R, the military version eventually led to Soyuz T, which then eventually led to Soyuz TMA and Progress One, which we're flying today. Soyuz T is, the first Soyuz with solid state computers on board. That's really important because we're about to see a mission where not having solid state computers and instead having, a, I believe, like vacuum tubes led to 
issues that actually uh, interrupted a, a, a number of different missions. So that's your history. I, I kind of wanted to show kind of the, the convoluted mm -hmm. family tree there and where we sit. So, okay. Soyuz 10, no solid-state computers. It was intended to be the first inhabitation of Salyut 1, the first people on a space station ever. They approached Soyuz, or they, they approached Salyut 1 without any issues. They have an uh, automatic uh, approach and docking computer. It approached to the 180-meter limit and then started futzing out, and so they switched over to manual, and they um, came in and did the rest of the docking manually. So they... On manual, they got up to soft capture. Now, let me talk a little bit about docking systems. We're, we should be familiar with the term soft capture and hard capture, or soft capture and hard docking. In the OKS docking system, it's a probe and drogue system, just like what we're using today on Soyuz, as opposed to the ring-type docking system that uh, Shuttle used, for example. Probe and drogue is actually really cool. The passive side on the space station has uh, like a cone with strike plates on the inside, like holes where latches, like hooks can hook into. The probe is on the active side on the spacecraft, and that's um, a probe that sticks out of the front. That probe is intended to hit somewhere, you know, it's close to center, but somewhere on the, on the drogue cone and slide in towards the center where the hooks on the edges of the probe can catch on the strikers or the, the latch plates inside the cone, right? So hmm. soft capture is when you get those latches hooked in. Hard capture is when you retract the cone or when you retract the probe and actually mate the docking, uh, the, the ring on the outside of the probe with the ring on the outside of the cone or the drogue. And then you can drive bolts through those rings and get a nice airtight seal and a nice hard capture. So they got up to the point where they got those latches in place, but they haven't retracted the probe yet. They're, they're still kind of floppy. So if you can imagine that situation, um, you can kind of think of a range of motion, right? Because the cone is intended to allow a large range of offsets, right? You don't have to be perfectly aligned. Uh, you can have some offsets and it'll still be able to get you into a soft capture and the retracting the probe can get you perfectly aligned into hard capture. So if you can imagine being in soft capture, you can kind of wobble around a little bit, right? Well, they had switched over to the manual mode. They got into soft capture and the computer said, oh, we're not quite aligned properly. Let me help. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know exactly what um, if this was a, a mode select issue or if they were doing some sort of, um, some sort of like driver assist function, sort of like a fly by wire. I'm going to interpret your inputs and try to execute them myself. But in any event, the computer decided that it was misaligned and that it was going to fix it by trying to rotate. Well, unfortunately, it rotated but pushed it off to the side of that movement cone, right? If you can think of that range of motion, it kind of pinned it up against one edge of that range and uh, dumped out a lot of fuel and made it impossible to retract the probe because they're getting pushed against one side of that, uh, of that range of motion, that cone. Hmm. So they ended up uh, shutting everything down 
and trying to retract the probe and they, they couldn't do it. It wasn't retracting properly even after they had shut everything down. So they decided, okay, we're going to call off the docking. We're just going to go home. So they try to disengage and the probe won't retract its latches. And so they're stuck. Um, and so the clue for this week was talking about the Phantom Menace when Jar Jar gets his hand stuck in Anakin, in the front of Anakin's pod racer. The offcast <laughs> 20, uh, 620C is the name of the, of the pod racing engine that he was using. I had to obscure it oh, somehow, okay. right? Wow. Um, but, but he gets his hand stuck and he can't get out. Um, and that, that's exactly what happened here. So what do you do? You, you're stuck. You got to get home. The first instinct was, well, the probe is on the orbital module. Let's just separate the descent module and the orbital module and we'll take the, uh, the descent module home and we'll leave the orbital module attached to the salute. But of course, that means that nobody else can dock to the salute and that, that's not an ideal solution. So I, I'm not exa- I know what the solution was. I'm not exactly sure what the, what the actual problem was. Public statements said that the hatch was faulty. Um, and so perhaps the hatch interfered with being able to retract the probe properly. But what all they had to do eventually was just to throw a circuit breaker to cut power to the docking system altogether. Um, and so what I believe happened is, uh, the, the docking system is stable in the retracted configuration. And so you have to apply power to deploy it. And so as soon as you cut power, the motor shut off and the springs re-engage and it all just kind of collapses in. And lo and behold, that's what they did. And they were able to separate just fine and go home without ever having entered the salute. So Soyuz 11, since they were able to get away free and clear, um, Soyuz 11 was able to dock with Salyut, but of course Soyuz 11 suffered a tragedy on reentry, um, and all three of the crew members died. Um, you could argue that they uh, are the only humans to have died in space, depending on, you know, we're, we're saying space, not orbit. It's kind of creepy. The, uh, the crew of Soyuz 10 also had an issue on reentry. Um, all I could find is that, uh, the, atmosphere had toxic fumes in it and one of the cosmonauts passed out um i'm not sure what happened i I did a little bit of poking around and i couldn't figure out i'm suspecting that they opened the snorkel early or they the attitude thrusters shut off late and so they started venting atmosphere or started exchanging uh cabin atmosphere with the external atmosphere while there were still fumes coming out of the um, the thruster system, either um, per- burn propellant or unburned propellant that's leaking. Um, but anyway, they, they landed and they were safe. So so that's okay. All right. So great. Uh, this week in Spaceflight History, great clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is our weird clue for next week? <laughs> yeah, I, I like this <laughs> clue better. Next week in 1954, the clue is Puma Puma Priest. So we went from Jar Jar to Puma Puma. Puma Puma Priest. Yeah, I have no idea. It kind of reminds me of Duck Duck Goose. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea, but I'm going to try. Okay, you're going to try? All right. <laughs> All right, so that's next week in 1954, Puma Puma Priest. So if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just two launches and one other thing going on. So what's that first launch? Well, first up, we have the uh, now-delayed Falcon 9 to take Starlink 6 and the uh, 60 Starlink satellites into orbit. Uh, Last week, I had mistakenly said that it was launching out of uh, LC-40, but it's actually 39A. Thank you, Ben Hallett, for pointing that out. 
but now you have an opportunity to see it again on April 23rd, launching at 1916 UTC. The next launch we have is a Soyuz launching Progress 75P. That's on April 24th slash 25th, depending on where you are. So that's just uh, another cargo delivery mission to the International Space Station. That's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, and that is at 0151 UTC. So that's on the 25th Universal Time, but if you're in the States, then that'll be on the 24th at around, I guess, 8, 9 o'clock p.m., depending on your exact T- time zone. Ten, so. ten o'clock. 10 o'clock Eastern time. Heck, if you're, if you're on the West Coast, I mean, it's only, it's only like, what, seven o'clock? Like, that's, that's a comfortable post, uh, yeah. post dinner show. Yeah. <laughs> that's not too late. Um, but, uh, on Saturday, the 25th for the, uh, for the U.S. and for Europe is the, uh, the coverage of the rendezvous and docking. So the docking is scheduled to take place at 1.12 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, and the coverage is going to begin a little bit earlier than that at 12.30 a.m. Eastern time. All right, so those are your upcoming Spaceflight events. So let's deal with the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.